if you came to Christmas Eve services and you've been to uh, now three weeks of this series, you're probably tired of that video. This is the fourth time you would have seen it. And I, I just have some news for you. You'll see it two more times as well, the next week and the week after. And usually we don't do that with all of our kind of promo bumper videos. But I personally love this video because I so identify with it, right? I just identify with a type of guy who just is always dreaming, always imagining the next exciting thing and uh, so just really identify with that kind of hope and that kind of excitement and also identify with the reality that so many of those dreams that I had never happened right and so uh, as we think about this new year the, you know three weekends into January into 2020 into a new year and a new decade and what we're actually saying is what if this could be your best year ever this could be your year what if this could be your best decade and many of you are kind of excited about that others of you are quite suspicious and there's one word that we've been looking at it go this word this word determines whether or not that's possible this one word determines whether or not it's even possible to have that kind of year and i've just mentioned the word twice because it just fits in with the sentence and here's the word over and over again you're going to get exhausted but we have two more weeks of this so lean in this word right here possibility possibility um here's kind of how it works if you think it's possible, it's possible. If you think it's not possible, you are correct, right? I think uh, Henry Ford said something similar. Uh, whether you think you can or can't, you are right, right? And so this idea of going, hey, what happens with New Year's resolutions is they continue to be a possibility as long as you think they're a possibility, right? And so now we're three weeks in. Some of you have been doing the gym thing for three weeks, eating the right food for three weeks. And you are suspicious to how long you're going to keep that up, right? No, no judgment here. And many of you had all these promises, these plans, and now within three weeks, something's changed. You've gone from, I think it's possible, to this. And this um, usually happens pretty quick, and we know the experience of it. And then it goes from, I think it's possible, to, I can't. I can't. I can't keep getting up early in the morning. I can't keep doing the right thing. I can't do that. I can't just eat that. I am tired of tuna fish, right? Whatever it is, you just can't. I can't. And so all of a sudden what happens is you can't, and typically the next step once you get to I can't, right, is there's some kind of binge, right? You're, you're looking at some food and you're going, I'm on this diet, I'm going to eat this food, and all of a sudden these Oreos come across your way and you just, ugh. I can do it, I can do it, and all of a sudden you just bite into it, you're like, I can't. And then what happens, right? You're just stuffing your face with Oreos. Then you go, well, I've already messed up today, right? I'll start again tomorrow, and then all of a sudden you go on this wild goose chase to find anything with sugar in your house, and you start consuming it. Doesn't matter what it is. It can be like the baking supplies. It just doesn't matter. You're just looking for what it is because you just consume it in your mouth, right? And then you go, tomorrow morning I'll get up and I'll start all over. Get up the next morning, going to work, and someone brought in donuts. <laughs> right? And then you're like, I can, I can, I can, I can have the willpower, I can have the willpower. And then you just take that one bite, you get back to I can't. And then what happens? Then you go, on Monday I'll start over. In February I'll start over. Right? And there's this pattern of going and going. And so as long as you think it's possible, as long as you keep pushing, you're doing good until you don't. And then you throw up your hands and say, I can't. Right? And this is the story of all of us. Uh, it can be on small things. It can be big things. It can be, I'm going to read my Bible. And now you, you version or whatever your app is keeps telling you to read. And uh, it's like day 20 and you're on day four. And you just go, I can't. I can't keep up. So what's the point? And you just go back in those same normal routines and patterns. This isn't the shame you. It's just the reality of what human nature is like. And so the question we've been, asked about been asking about possibility is not what do you think is possible? Because that's the wrong question. Because eventually, whatever those things are, eventually going to end up in this place of uh, I can't. So a better question we've been asking, challenge you to ask is not what do you think is possible? What do you think God thinks is possible for you this year, this decade? What do you think God thinks is possible? Now that question, for a lot of you, gets you really excited, right? Because now all of a sudden you're tapped into this supernatural God of infinite possibility, the one who sees tomorrow is ahead of us and with us. And some of you are like, yes, yes, that's a good question. Right? Others of you were really excited about that question a couple weeks ago. Because you thought this was going to be your year, right? That God was going to do the impossible in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your job, in your health. 
And now all of a sudden we're three weeks in and we're pretty suspicious of God's going to do that. So for many of us, this idea of what does God think is possible, it's a really, really good question. And you're really, really excited. For others, you've already been let down. Because God hasn't met your expectations in the way that you'd like him to. And so you're wondering, either is it that God doesn't like you, right? Is it that God doesn't like you? Is he not interested in you? Does he not love you? Does he not have a plan for you? Are the worst questions, the worst kind of consideration is not that God doesn't like you, right? It's that not only can you not do it, God can't do it either. Right? Which is a really terrible thing. And you've come to some good reasons about this. Right? Now, no judgment here. Right? You look at our world and go, how in the world do we live in 2020 and people are still slaves? How can we look all across our globe and people are impoverished and do not know where their next meal is going to come from? Like there are people who are going to die today from starvation. Could you imagine that kind of suffering? To get to the point where you don't even have food to eat and you die out of hunger. Not that I'm hungry like your kids say because they get home from school and they haven't eaten for an hour and a half. But like real, legitimate hunger. And people die from that. Our people literally in 2020 die from not having water. Right? Not only do we have water all over our globe, we have ways to filter it and clean it and lots of solutions to that. And we look and we go, how in the world in 2020 is that the case? How in the world do kids still get abused? And you go, if anything's possible and God could do anything, then why in the world has he not done those things? And your solution must be either God doesn't care, which that's not a God you're really interested in, or God's not capable. In other words, God can't. And so what do we do with those things? Some of us are still filled with this hope and possibility. I'd say stay there. And others, others of you three weeks in are going, I'm just not so hopeful. And no longer do I think about the possibility of what God could do in my life or in our world this year. The hope and possibility, they are waning. That's good. We're three weeks in. It makes sense that we'd be at this spot. And I'd say, don't lose hope. And what we've been doing the last several weeks is looking at a people group who have wondered the same things, wrestled with the same problems, dealt with the same struggles, and frankly, did some really rough things as a result, right? They did a lot more than binge on Oreos. And so these, this people group we're looking at is actually found in the Old Testament of the Bible, the Israelites. And this is beautiful because literally the name Israel, God gave to a man whose family becomes this great nation, right? And the name, his name was Jacob, but God changed his name to Israel and it literally means to wrestle with God. In other words, this wrestling between can God, can God not, does he love us, does he not? And so they would have these moments of great revival and excitement that God can. He would come through and they'd worship and they would make sacrifices and they would tell God he's greater than all their stuff. And then they'd have these other moments of deep weakness and pain where they go, we don't think God cares about us at all. We think God is completely absent. So it just makes sense we go to our own things. So the way that it happens over and over again for these Israelites, you read Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then we find the story of Joshua, which kind of tells the story of these, these Israelites finally coming to some conclusion through some leadership of this, this warrior king, Joshua, that perhaps there is a land still filled with possibility. In fact, Joshua leads them into this land, and it's a land that they call the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, and it's a beautiful land. And they move in, and their hearts are welled up with excitement and anticipation. And Joshua gives them directions to go, go find your land, all 12 of these tribes of Israel. Go find your land. Clean it up. Clean the people out. And this is going to be a great, great year, a great, great decade, a great generation, a great nation. And they were so excited about the possibility. Right? But then after a few weeks, few months, few years, they start wondering if it's worth it. If the amount of energy they put into this, the amount of time that they have to do what's right, the amount of time they have to deny themselves of some kind of pleasure that they think will fulfill them in that moment. And finally, multiple times, they go, we understand that God had a plan for us in this land, a possibility, but we like our plan better than God's. It's called rebellion. It's literally going, God, we don't really think you can. We don't think you really care. We don't think it's actually possible that you can meet us, meet our needs, and fulfill us, and give us a life of hope and a future. We just don't think you can anymore. So our best bet is just to take it back over, eat the Oreos, and then just go eat, drink, and be merry. If this is going to be miserable, if this is the only life we're going to have, we might as well enjoy all the goodness that we can get today. Right? So whether or not you exist, God, we're not sure. We think you do. But we're going to live our lives like you don't exist because it just seems painful waiting on you. Your timing is not our timing, and we like our timing and our plans better. So they rebel. Now, what you see throughout the scriptures, particularly in the book of Judges, also in the book of Joshua, you see God basically goes, 
His anger. Now, it's not the anger that you think of. You think of an abusive dad who hits and swings and swears. That's not how God works. God's anger is not at the people. I mean, he's angry, disappointed. He's actually angry at what they're doing to themselves. Right? And so these folks, like just like any addiction, any, any problem, like just this past week I was, I was sharing last night, um, my um, middle daughter, Amelia, uh, turned eight uh, last Wednesday, right? So she was eight, really, really exciting. We love her, love to celebrate her. And one of the things that we kind of do as a family is we go eat at this one restaurant in Newark, Delaware. Um, it, I can't pronounce it, but it's a Brazilian steakhouse, and we go and eat. And if you've never been to a Brazilian steakhouse, they have this big, massive uh, buffet. And then they also have these fancy guys dressed up carrying around big meat sticks. Not like beef jerky. I'm talking about like these big swords just filled with meat. I mean, it is glorious. And some of you are vegetarians, and I'm sorry that I'm sharing this story with you. But it is, it is glorious, right? And so they go, they eat a couple of vegetables first, eat the food. And then these guys just are coming around like, you want some meat? And they're like, yeah, give us it. We want a bloody. I'm sorry. I know some of you think it's gross, but some of you eat steak with a steak sauce. And sincerely, I hope today the Lord saves you. <laughs> There's no A1 or Heinz 57 in this place, right? It's just good meat. And so they bring you meat after meat after meat after meat. They bring you fried bananas. And they bring you uh, all sorts of just uh, really, really, really fancy stuff, right? Um, and, uh, and so they just kept eating. Our kids did. And I kept eating. And we kept eating. And and then it got to kind of the end of the meal, and since it was Amelia's birthday, we were going to celebrate with dessert, and they come out, and they, you know, they list all the desserts, and you know what that's like. You're like, I want them all, all of them, and the kids are like, we need 70 of them. And we're like, nope, we're going to get two, and we're going to split it, and they're all whining like, we need more desserts than that. That's not fair. You don't love us. They didn't say that. They just thought it. Um, and so uh, we order a couple desserts, some kind of uh, molten lava cake, and then some peanut butter cake. Yeah, yeah, it sounds good, right? And so then we split it up, and so these are a fairly small portions. You know, we spent $12 on this dessert that feeds half a person and we're trying to distribute it amongst five and so they start eating. <laughs> it's so funny because they have already eaten way too much food. Way too much food. It's like they don't have any room. Like literally. One of my children went up and went to use the bathroom just so they could create some space in their... Yeah. Right? <laughs> so, uh, so they're sitting there and they're eating and one by one they all just start moaning. Like they're moaning. Like they're just like, oh, I hurt. Like Briggs, my oldest, is laying his head on the table. And he's like, where's my pillow and blanket? Like he can't even stay awake. He's just so full. And, you know, they're sweating. They got the meat sweats. You know what I'm talking about? There's meat sweats. And so they're all this good, great food. And they just can't, you know, they can't govern themselves. And so they get in the car and we drive back and they're all whining home, you know, and it's like, this is that story. These very things that they think are going to be the things they're so excited about. Ah, oh, this is it. We don't need anything else. Just give us food. We're going to eat, drink, and be merry. And all of a sudden, what happens is they got turned over to their own desires. That's what happens you see in the scriptures as God goes, you want this? You think this is going to be the thing that's going to fulfill you? Okay, okay. Why? It's going to destroy you, and I can't. I am enraged that that person would do that to you. I'm enraged that you would let them. But the only way you can get some clarity on this is not if I lord over you and scream at you and tell you to behave, right? It's not shame. Shame is a terrible motivator. So it doesn't make sense I'd sit here and shame you. So instead, what he does is it literally goes, he uh, tells us in Romans chapter 1, he turns them over to their desires. And guess what happens for them? Every single time, and you know the story as well, they feel great pain, right? Now, we don't avoid this. We want to. We want to avoid pain. We want to avoid talking about pain. But it's such a brilliant and perfect clarifying understanding and response, right? Pain shows us every time that something's off, right? And so these are like deep, great pain. Deep, great pain. And now here's the thing I want you to hear. We're really good at this too. The Israelites and us, we're, we're pretty good at passing the pain test. Okay? We're pretty good at it. When we feel enough pain, finally we cry out, right? And so the Israelites, they cry out to God, and God, every single time, people repent and cry out. Guess what, God? So they cry out and go, God, God, we shouldn't have done that. That isn't the thing. We shouldn't have eaten all that. We shouldn't have trusted them with that. We shouldn't have allowed that. We shouldn't have done that. We're so sorry that we thought that would be the thing that would fix all the other things. That would be the thing that would make us feel more worth, but it's actually made us feel worthless. So sorry, God. So they cry out and go, God, would you save us? And every single time in the scriptures, you've got to understand this, 66 books of crying out, and every single time what happens is God sends salvation. Now for the Israelites, this was a band-aid solution, and so the book of Judges is about these 12 
you know, judges who came in to deliver the people from their pain and sorrow. So God sends in salvation through what we understand as the judges. We've been reading about them. We've seen four of them the last couple of weeks. Don't have time to cover any of those. And so we're going to see the story of judges coming in and finally going, hey, you can't live that way anymore. There is a better way to live. And so every time what happened is the judge would go and he would destroy the oppressor. He would destroy the things that were enslaving God's people. The ones who are wrestling with God, they're going, God, we think it's possible again. We think you could save us. Would you please save us? We can't save ourselves. We know we can't, but we think you can. So he'd cry out and God would send a judge. And that judge would come bring them salvation. And guess what? Every single time that judge would lead them back to this land filled with possibility. And it would be a beautiful land. And it would say, as long as the judge was living and reminding them of this land of possibility, as long as you remember that God can, as long as you remember that God can, as long as that was happening, these folks would have peace and prosperity. And you see, we're really good at passing the test of pain. But what I want you to hear today, we are really bad at passing the test of prosperity. And so if you're wondering, how in the world do the Israelites keep going back to this land of rebellion? And how do we keep messing it up? There is a clear example of this that you're going to see in the Scriptures today. So if you don't believe in God, really, really good day for you to um, be here. Because He believes in you. This is so crazy. You don't believe in Him. But He wholeheartedly believes in you. And once you hear nothing more than He believes in you and sees you as He's made you to be. So don't believe in that. That's fine. He wants you to know that He believes in you and you're going to hear that today. You know, for some of us, you're in that kind of back and forth. Yes, this is going to be my year. And then you've already just walked through the cycle one, two, three times. You keep going, how in the world do I keep ending back up in this place of rebellion? You'll see really clearly why that happens. And the way by which we're going to see it today, right, is uh, through a judge. Now, what's neat about this judge is typically we've seen a little about the judges and we've seen kind of what their proactivity. We've seen how they respond and serve God. But we don't see a lot of the the inner turmoil that these judges are feeling. We don't actually know what it's like. We think of these judges as these great warriors, right? And so today, we're going to see a broken, weak, scaredy cat of a judge named Gideon, who God is going to do something uh, spectacular in. And you're going to see this whole cycle take place. And so we're going to be in Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8. That's a lot. And so it's going to be more of a survey. We're going to highlight some of these verses. By the way, your kiddos are learning the same stuff over in KidZone. But just to give you kind of a big overarching view of Gideon, here's a quick three-minute video just to tell you the whole story. Then we'll start reading the scriptures. Here it goes. God's story. Gideon. So part of God's story is about a man named Gideon. And it begins like this. Israel, God's special family, had turned against the one real God and worshipped idols. They had forgotten how God had loved and cared for them and needed a reminder that he was the one in charge. So God took away the Israelites' farms for seven long years. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, God would let another nation called the Midianites sweep through and camp on Israel's land, ruining everything that was growing there. But even though his own family had forgotten him, God still loved them deeply. So, at the end of the seven years, God appeared to a young Israelite named Gideon. God said he was going to free the Israelites with Gideon's help. Gideon, however, wasn't so sure. So he asked God to prove himself by performing a series of miracles. Gideon said, if the fleece is wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry, Then I will know that you're going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. That's what happened. Just to be sure, the next night, Gideon asked God to do the opposite. Make the fleece dry and make the ground wet. And God did it. Next, he even sent a sign through an angel. Gideon was finally convinced that God was in his corner. So he called together an army to fight against the Midianites. Now, normally, having lots of people is a good thing when you're about to battle. But like I said, God does things a bit differently. He told Gideon that the Israelites had too many soldiers. If they won now, God knew the Israelites would say it was because of their own strength and brag about it. So, God wanted Gideon to have a smaller army. Gideon was nervous, but he did as God asked, which is always a good idea, by the way. He told his men that if they were afraid, they could return home. With that, 22,000 soldiers left, leaving Gideon with about 10,000. For you math whizzes, that's two-thirds of his army just poof, gone. Even after all that, the army was still too big. So God told Gideon to take the soldiers down to the water to drink, and then send home the soldiers who drank out of the stream like dogs. 
Again, Gideon did what God asked and was now left with only 300 soldiers. God knew Gideon was probably worried, so he told him to sneak down to the enemy camp where Gideon heard soldiers talking about a crazy dream where a loaf of bread rolled into the Midianite camp and over their tent. One soldier said that could only mean that Gideon would triumph over them. Gideon returned to his own camp confident that he would win the battle. He divided his men into three groups and gave them each a trumpet and a jar with a torch inside. Not usually what you bring to a fight, but God had a plan. Gideon's army reached the edge of the Midianite camp and then went into action. They blew their trumpets, smashed their jars, and shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! And don't forget, they did all of this without a single weapon in their hands. Terrified, the Midianites fled, accidentally attacking each other as they went. In fact, they ran so far from the battlefield that other Israelites were able to capture and defeat the leaders of the Midianites. With the enemy leaders gone and their army running away, God had saved Israel, just like he said he would. And that's the story of Gideon. So that's the story of Gideon. So where we find ourselves in Judges chapter 6 is they've just walked through the cycle. Deborah leads them out into freedom. They have this great life. And Deborah the judge dies. And all of a sudden they rebel and go, we like our plan better than God's. They find that God turns his back from them, removes his prosperity, removes his protection, removes his, uh, you know... All, you know, all those things, provision, and all of a sudden they find themselves in a lot of pain. This time the pain is from the Midianites who are oppressing them, beating them, taking advantage of them, using them for their own gain and pleasure. And they finally cry out to God and go, God, 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 would you please save us? We know we keep doing this, but God, we think the only way that this is going to get any better is if you will save us and God is going to send them a savior. Now, this isn't Jesus. This is a, a temporary band-aid solution that's going to come save them and lead them back to a land of possibility. So here goes. We're about to find God when he's going to show up with this judge, Gideon, and we're going to see the calling of a new judge. This is pretty neat. Don't get to see this all the time. So Judges chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Let's see what it says. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abysrite where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midian. So a lot going on here. We see Gideon. We know of his dad, now Joash. He's a, a pretty important guy for the, the Israelis and his tribe. Like he's a, 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 in the tribe of Manasseh. He's a, he's a great leader. And so Gideon's the boy. And so what's going on here is they are hungry. They're hungry. They don't have anything to eat. And so Gideon is trying to create some food. And what he's doing is he's threshing wheat. Now, typically the way that this would happen uh, in, in the Old Testament is there would be something called a threshing floor. Okay? It would be like this really hard rock or this really like uh, tamped down hard compact place where there would be very little debris and it would just be hard. And what would happen is they uh, would be beating these stalks. Right? And what happens is they'd beat the stalks. They'd hope the big heavy parts of the wheat would fall off. And they'd throw up the rest of it in the air. And what happened is the wind would blow away all the stuff that catches on fire easy, all that kind of stuff, so that it would, this would be the way that they would separate it. So typically, when folks were, you know, doing this threshing of wheat, they would do it really high up. The reason being is the higher up you are, the more wind there is, right? And so they would find a place, big flat rock, and they'd be working on it, and they'd be throwing up. So a threshing floor was at best, uh, you know, at its highest level. But the problem with being high is people can see that. So when we find Gideon is he's literally using a wine press. That's different than a threshing floor. A wine press is where you would take grapes and you would do the stomping, you know what I'm talking about, and make it all, and it would all kind of contain it into some kind of clay bowl, some kind of big, so it would be in a ditch. It would be recessed in the ground. So this is not a place that you thresh wheat, but we find Gideon here. And it tells us why we find him there. For he wanted to keep it from the Midianites. He's hiding. This guy right here is not courageous. He's not filled with courage. This doesn't seem like the right guy to have as your leader. He is hiding in a ditch in a wine press, making wheat balls, right? So that's what we got going on here. So he is probably being quiet, working all this stuff right there in the middle of this ditch. And so all of a sudden what we see is the angel of the Lord came to him there. So here we find Gideon hiding, cowering, afraid. He is in a spot where he's saying, no, no, I can't. I can't do anything. Like the only thing I can do is hope that I can get enough food to arrive safely to bedtime. And so their worldview at this point is security above all things, right? 
safety above all things, comfort above all things. And their goal was to extend their life as far as they can to eventually sometime way out in the future arrive safely at death. Pretty common worldview. And so that's where you find Gideon. He's hedging. He's trying to protect himself. And he is in a wine press. When, verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Okay. Now, uh, J.D. Greer says it this way. If this were like a, you know, 14th century, 15th century stage play, and the angel were to show up and say this to Gideon as he's like shaking and cowering, this would be where the audience would like erupt in laughter. Like this is, this is him showing up and calling this coward that everybody knows as a coward, the one who says he can't, a mighty warrior. So there's a couple things you've got to point out here. Lots, actually. Um, first, you see where it says the angel of the Lord said, then it said the Lord is with you. This is where it gets complicated. And you're going to see this throughout the, the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay? Um, the, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew because that was the language of, of, the, of the day for the Jews. And so um, when the angel of the Lord shows up all throughout the Old Testament and the word Lord shows up, typically it's the same word. This is the same word. And so this gets really confusing. So is the angel saying the angel's with me? And then he goes, the Lord is with you. So is the angel speaking on behalf of a different Lord, but he uses the same word? And so for the Jews reading this, this gets really, really complicated. Why does the angel of the Lord sometimes refer to himself as the angel of the Lord and other times refer to himself as the Lord? You see this in other scriptures. With Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they get thrown in the fire. And sometimes it says an angel of the Lord was with them. And then you go, but that also says the Lord was with them. Was it the angel? Was it the Lord himself? And then the New Testament did actually says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, is saved. And that term points directly to Jesus. So it gets really, really complicated here. It's the same language is used throughout the scriptures. And even here, you're going to see it go back and forth to sometimes calling it the angel Lord, other times calling it the Lord. But it's the same language. And the reason being, this is really, really neat, guys. Not really the message, but really neat. Is It's the same word because it's the same person. It's the same word because it's the same person. So what we would call that, not necessarily a big word, but it's the word Christophany. You know what an epiphany is, right? It's like when you have this, ah, this sudden appearance of a great idea or whatever it is. Christophany is a sudden appearance of Christ. So this is so profound. And this moment, when you see it throughout the Old Testament, uh, Jews have a hard time reconciling this. Going, okay, why is it sometimes listed this way and others? Well, for us, it's a lot simpler going. Well, the reason sometimes he calls himself the angel of the Lord and other times he calls himself the Lord is because the Bible tells us in the New Testament that Jesus was with God in the very beginning. For example, when God is making everything and he decides to make man, you know what he says there? Let us make man in his own image. Wait, is God schizophrenic? Why in the world is he talking to himself as an us? Right? Well, there's a reason. The scriptures tell us that there was always a God in three persons. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's Jesus, right? And so what we see here is that Jesus always was. So before he shows up as a baby in the New Testament, he shows up as an angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. You see, every scripture, all 66 books are all pointing to one hopeful Savior who will come and save everything. Not a band-aid, not a temporary solution, but a Savior that will bring us into a land for all eternity, for all possibility. And this is what we believe is happening here. Is this guy is showing up to uh, Gideon, and he's looking at him and going, uh, an angel of the Lord shows up and says, the Lord, that's me, Gideon, is with you, mighty warrior. Why in the world was he calling him mighty warrior? It's really important because, you know, Jesus, if it's this Jesus talking, he can actually say this because Jesus knows that he's going to come and pay the price for Gideon's sins. And then he's going to know that in the New Testament, hundreds of years later, they're actually, he's going to declare himself as God. And people are not going to like that. And they're going to murder him for that declaration. And then they're going to actually put him in a tomb after his death because they want him to be done making those bold and what they believe are false claims. Then a couple of days later, he comes back to life, back to life to show that he's actually God and his words are actually, actually true. Then you see later in the epistles, these letters written about this, that people tell us the same power that conquered the grave now is available to us. And so what Jesus is doing here when he's talking to Gideon, he's going, I can't see you as you are. I see you as you will be. Amen. See that? I see you as you will be. I see you through the resurrection, through the fact that I'm going to come back to life and I'm going I'm to cover your sins. I'm calling you who you actually are because I see who you're going to become. So this is really different than what we understand. In fact, some of you don't like talking about Satan, the enemy, but this is a really interesting way to kind of give you kind of a contrast. You see, Jesus looks at who we're going to be and calls us that now. The enemy looks at who you are and calls you that now so you never will become who you're supposed to be. Right? So Jesus looks at us and says, see, you're cowering in a wine press, but you're going to be a mighty warrior. So because you're going to be, and I stand outside time, I'm not going to say one day you will be. I'm just going to declare that truth for you now. You are a mighty warrior. Because look, 
Hey, Gideon, you got, I don't know, 60 years on this planet. And after that, you got an infinity in the future. Why in the world would I focus on this little blip of who you are in this moment when who you actually are is who you're going to be and you'll be that forever? So it doesn't make sense I talk about who you are as a, you know, a, a three-day-old baby when I talk to you in kind of your body of work as a, as a being and a soul. So he looks into Gideon and calls him Mighty Warrior because he knows that's who he'll be forever. Big difference here than what the enemy would kind of whisper to you with some truth and some falsehoods that remind you that no one will ever trust you if they really knew you. That mess in your life, it'll never get fixed, right? So you might as well just say, I can't. So in this moment, you see Jesus show up and look at Gideon and call him a mighty warrior. Not because he's acting like one, but because Jesus sees him as that. Because Jesus is going to make him that. Because this is what it says next. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And this is the progression for all of us in fear working through. It goes, I can't. That's not a bad thing, guys. I can't. It's probably true. You can't fix yourself. You can't make your kids behave. You can't solve all the problems. You can't save yourselves. So this is not actually a bad statement. As long as you don't end it there, right? This is, this is not, this doesn't get a period after, right? So it's, I can't, but, really important here, hey Gideon, you're right, you can't. You're a coward in a wine press. I can, but guess what? But God can. So we're going to see throughout the story is this reminder of Gideon is going, you're right, you're right, you're right. I can't. But what God's going to do in you, making you a mighty warrior, I can't. But guess what? God can. So watch what happens next. Here's what goes on next. Gideon goes, pardon me, Lord. Uh, but if the Lord is with us, if he can, why has all this happened to us? Where are all of his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, do not let, did not the Lord bring us about Egypt? God, you parted seas and you brought on plagues and you made your presence known to your people and to our adversaries. But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. God, you turned your back on us. You turned us over to our pleasure. And it's caused a bunch of pain. You see this though? At this point, Gideon still thinks it's God's fault. Still thinks it's God's fault. He goes, where have you been, God? By the way, like I told you, this is a big battle for us. We look at our world and go, it is filled with pain. How in the world can this be happening Middle East and South America and Africa, all these different places? How in the world can this be happening if God is really good? God, you keep talking about you have this big plan and you're with us. It certainly doesn't feel like you are with us, God. I want you to see Jesus' response. The Lord, Lord turned to him. So this is making sure. This is eye contact, the God of the universe, with Gideon. Watch what he says. Get, um, Go in strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. God, I don't even know how you're going to do this. You're not even with us. You're not even doing anything. You're not sending your salvation to your people. You're not doing that, God. And watch what he says here. He says... Go in your strength in your hand and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Here's what he's saying. Am I not sending you? Guys, this is so important. And I certainly hope so convicting. When we look at our world and say, why in the world is there still sex trafficking? And we go, God, why aren't you doing anything? God is going, I put two billion people on this planet with my spirit so if you're asking why I'm not there, I'm asking you the same thing. God, why in the world is there poverty all over our world? Where are you? And God's going, have you not checked your bank account? Have you not opened up your pantry? I put two billion people on this planet with my spirit. I'm asking them the same question. Right? The, the reality of the story of God is he comes and he saves us. But he doesn't beam us up into heaven in that moment. Right? If you're a Christian and you're still here, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Right? And if you're not a Christian, you should like this. Because you're going, I've been asking the same thing. You guys keep holding your bullhorns, screaming at me, telling me how bad I am. But when bad breaks out in this world, I don't see you in the middle of it. Right? And so God's literally going, hey Gideon, you're asking where I am and I'm here with you. Because you have my presence and you can take my presence to my people. I am here with you. I am giving you my presence. And I am calling you to take me to your people. The activity of God in this world at this time is through his people. 
This generation's activities are going to come through his people. The resolutions and restoration of our world is not going to be politics. It's not going to be a better education system. It's not going to be better health care. It's going to be God's people empowered by his spirit going to the ends of the earth to do that. And stay with me. This is a really important part to stay on the cycle. So watch what happens next. Verse 15. Uh, pardon me, Lord, but how can I save Israel? I can't. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. So God, there's these 12 tribes. My tribe, if we, you know, on, you know, Israel, Israel field days, we're losing everything. Like the tug of war, we just drop the rope and we giggle because we think we're cool. No one else thinks we're cool, right? We are the weakest link in the whole tribe. We are cowards and we are weaklings. And so he goes, God, my clan is the weakest in the whole, the whole nation. And God, I am the weakest in my clan. Do you not see me? I'm hiding in a wine press. Like of all the people to choose. God, I, I, I can't. Now watch what God says. The Lord answered, I will be with you. If you write in your Bibles, when you're in your Bibles, I would just say there's not a more important statement that comes out of the Old Testament that you should circle, that you should highlight, and that you should tattoo on your body in Hebrew if you want to get a hip tattoo, right? The Lord says, I will be with you. He's going, yes, Gideon, you can't. That is true. But God can. I can. And I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites. And there'll be none alive. None. I mean, it will be over. Your oppressor will be removed. You can live in the freedom I have for you. All the oppression. All the pain. It can go away. And getting the way by which that's going to happen is through you. Gideon replied, if now I fell in favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it really is you talking to me. This sounds like us, right? Okay, God, if that's really you, I'm going to need you to prove it, right? So watch what Gideon does. And God is being so gracious. Jesus is so gracious. I would not recommend Gideon's approach here, okay? But Jesus is very gracious. You can understand. He's just as patient and slow to anger with us. Watch what happens here. If now I found a favor in your eyes, uh, and you're really talking to me, please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. Okay, I'm going to set an offering, so you stay right here. He literally goes... No, God wants you to have a seat, okay? So he literally is telling God to sit still in this place. You sit. No, 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 don't get up. You sit. And so the God of the universe sits down, and Gideon goes to set his offering. You know, watch what happens. So he's going to go make a, a meal. Um, and the Lord said, I will wait until you return. So nice of you, Jesus. Gideon went inside. He prepared a young goat. And from an uh, ephah of flour, that's just a, a measuring unit, uh, he made bread without yeast. Pretty interesting to pay attention to that. Don't have time to talk about it, but there's some stuff to think about there. Putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot, he brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. I made you an offering. Here, have some soup. Have a sandwich, right? Soup and sandwich day. Then angel of God, so you see this. Sometimes it says the Lord. Now he's saying the angel of God said to him, take the meat... And the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. Okay? This is like one of those bread bowls, I guess. You know what I'm talking about? The, the bowls you can eat if you like soup, which I think is disgusting. I'm always hungry after soup. You're hungry after soup. Some of you are too, right? You know that. Right? Um, and Gideon did so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of a staff that was in his hand, and fire flamed from the rock. Consuming the meat and bread. And you know what happens when magicians do this, right? What happens after the smoke and the fire? Every single time. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. You see that? He does the, the, like the, the fire in the alley. He does the smoke and the mirrors and all the stuff. And all of a sudden, he's just gone off the stage, right? David Copperfield does it. David Blaine does it. The angel of the Lord is the, you know, the front runner here. They stole their ideas from God. And so he disappears. Verse 22. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, huh, he exclaimed, Alas! Sovereign Lord, the one who can. That's what sovereign means, the one who can. I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face, but the Lord said to him, Peace. Hey, you don't have to live in fear. Peace. Don't be afraid. You are not going to die. That's nice. Hey, you're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar in front of the Lord and called it uh, to the Lord and called it the Lord as peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abysrites. So Gideon responds, See what he does there? We'll see it a couple different times. He responds in worship. You see, one of the things that's required for us to trust God is faith. Faith is putting your trust in something else. 
Right, so again, like right now I'm leaning on the stool. I am putting my trust in the stool so I don't make a fool of myself in front of all of you. Mm -hmm. And most of you are hoping the stool stays put. A few of you would love to see that, right? You are, you're the type of the wedding that you, the girl's walking, the bride's walking down, you're like, please trip, please trip. <laughs> and that's terrible. That's terrible that you think that. So he responds, builds this altar, really, really important. So in this moment I go, for lacking courage, I almost can promise you that your lack of courage and your lack of faith is a direct correlation, even causation, to your lack of worship. Right? So I'm going to say, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Praise Him, His holy name. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, with all my inmost being. Praise the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not His benefits. There's something about this, that there's something about worshiping and reminding yourself what God has done for us. That's what an altar does. That God showed up here, He brought His peace, and the next time I forget it, I'm going back to that place. Right? And so Gideon sets out this place and goes, no, no, no. I am going to wonder again if God can. And I'm going to know that I can't. And so in that moment, he's going to lean in and go after those things. Now watch this. Uh, verse 25. The same night, the Lord said to him, take the bull from your father's herd, right? And one, uh, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. So he's going, okay, Gideon, we're going to take new territory here. Before I take new territory through you, got to take it in you. Right? And you see where this is happening. Watch what, what we see here. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of, the, uh, on top of this height using a wood of the Asher pole that you cut down all for the second bull as a burnt offering. So he's literally calling them in and saying, Here, here's the thing again. There's something going on in your house that you got to clean up. This is the same story he tells the Israelites. Hey, you're going to have new land, but there's something in that land you've got to clean up. So he's literally going, hey, we're going to do some great stuff, but we've got to get our house in order. And now notice this. He's, he's saying, there is a, another idol your family worships. And you're going, no, no, I'd never do this. This doesn't mean that they worship just this idol. That means they worship God in addition to this. And this idol that we look at here is actually Asherah, which um, the Hebrews and you know, the pagans at that time, Midianites, would have declared this kind of uh, Mother Earth. Mother Earth, this is who this is. This is the, you know, Mother Earth, the, the Earth that guides things and protects things and all those things we still use. You know, sometimes we like to use the term active God, but a lot of us like to talk about getting Mother Earth happy, I mean, unhappy. And so, this, in this worldview and belief system, they actually have this Mother Earth that's kind of married to God. In other words, God's kind of a doofus, right? And he couldn't do it all by himself, but if you give him Mother Earth and give him that, then God can, you know... Not get too angry. She can pet him, make him some soup, whatever it is. And so they didn't just worship God. They worshiped this other God who they believed would care for their land, care for their people, care for those things. Like nurture them. When God seems absent, they go to the nurturers. They made up this false God to make themselves feel better. And they would worship this God. And God is going, hey, before we clean up anything out there, the first thing we got to do is we got to deal with these false idols. And you know what these false idols are always about? Security. Security. We got a clean house when you think that this false idol, whether it's yourself, whether you think it's your job, whether you think it's your reputation, whatever you think it's your pantry, these false idols that you believe are the things that will sustain you and give you security if, anything, if everything else goes bad. And so he's literally saying to Gideon, you've got to clean that up because there's one sovereign God and there's only one God who can. Asherah can't. You know why she can't? She's not real. So the fact that you have this idol and this belief system where you're worshiping things, it's got to be destroyed. So he sends... Gideon in to destroy it. Verse 27. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid, again, this is a work in progress uh, of his family and the townspeople. That's fair. He did it at night rather than the daytime. So he does these things. He destroys it. And you, as you can imagine, people get really, really angry. And they're going, who did this? Who did this? And they finally figure out it's Gideon. And they start thinking, he should die for this. He should die. Like, he should die. Like, let's murder him. Now, Gideon's dad, who set up the idol, by the way, says to his people, hey, 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 if we really believe in this God, then this God will take offense to what Gideon did, and this God will destroy Gideon. This God will destroy Gideon. So they literally give him a new name, Jeroboam, which means Baal will contend. In other words, if this God is real, let's just let this God handle Gideon. Right? Which is, by, by the way, a brilliant move 
because his God isn't real, so he's not going to do anything to Gideon. And so that's Joash's response. So he sees this moment, and then that happens. And then after that, Gideon's like, okay, there's going to be this war now as a result of this offense to this God, this false God, this false security. So this war is going to rage, and it's going to be Gideon versus all these people. Right? And so these two kind of sides are about to get together. Before it happens, Gideon's like, God, I, um, I, got, I want to trust you here. Uh, can you show me some more signs? Again, I would not recommend this. And I, at the very end, I'll give you a reason why. It'll be worth your time to hear. But Gideon kind of takes this fleece, this animal skin, you know, with sheep skin or whatever it is, with the hair on the top. And he says a couple things. God, if you're real, I'm going to close my eyes, go to sleep, and wake up. Would you make this wet, the ground dry? Right? And so God does that. And he says, oh, I should have done the opposite. Okay, next night, God, would, would you actually make the ground wet and the fleece dry? Both times God comes to him and he's like, okay, I guess the Lord's with me. I guess I'm going to go do this because I can't, but God can. And so he's about to go into war. And so this war is about to wage. And there's 32,000 Israeli soldiers against the Midianites. So it's looking like a pretty good clash, right? It's probably going to end up in a technical knockout. Like, I mean, this is going to be to the, you know, multiple rounds. And so I don't know if Gideon's feeling good, but it seems plausible that they could win this. It might be possible, especially if God's on their side. And so God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, you can't have this big of an army. Here's the reason. You're not going to think I did this. Like, you're going to wonder if you did this, if you manufactured this move or if I did that, which frankly is my biggest fear and what I wrestle with more in life than anything else as, as a pastor. Did God do that? Do we manufacture that move of God in our community? Or is the Lord really doing the work and God's going, I want credit for this. And so he does a couple things. He says, Gideon, just ask the ones who are afraid just to go. And so Gideon stands up in front of 32,000. Hey, are you afraid? And 22 are like, yep, I'm afraid. And they leave. And uh, in that video, they're like, for those of you math people, it's, they lost two-thirds of their army. And you're like, it's not exactly two-thirds, right? You've calculated the number. And then there's 10,000 left. And... God's like, okay, that's a little... And Gideon's like, that's not going to be a fair fight. So this, it's us and God. Still this underdog story. At least it feels like it, which is such a lie. No fight with God is an underdog story. Like you look at David and Goliath, and we even refer to like the big games as David versus Goliath. And I'm like, that is the, the most terrible description of this. Because there's never a fight with God that's an underdog story. Right? Do you know with David plus God versus Goliath is very unfair to Goliath? Right? <laughs> Gideon plus God versus the Midianites. That's very unfair. You don't need Gideon, right? God versus the Midianites. Not fair. And so God's like, I need you to understand that and get credit. So then he sends them down to drink water. 10,000 of them. And he goes, the ones who drink like dogs, those are the ones I want. So they're the ones who kind of lap it up with their tongue. That's different than what a, what a cat does. You'd think it's the same, but a cat, they just stick their tongue up fast real, and then creates this vacuum to bring it in. And so basically what I think God's saying is, I don't want any men who fight or, or act like cats to be in my army. Just dogs. You know why? Cats have demons in them. They have demons in them. Like, there's no reason that God's, God's like, they're not on my team. They're little demons. They're little hairy demons. They're always just kind of walking behind you, waiting for you to do something that you, they can't that, go around the corner so they can mess up your hair, right? They just want to jump right in or whatever. It is. Sorry, I got a little side, but anyway. So, dogs, the army, 300 versus a very massive army. That is very, very concerning. And you can imagine Gideon's a little anxious about this. He should be. So, they're about to have war. Gideon's nervous, and God's so nice, and he says, hey, Gideon, before we have this war, what I want you to do, if you're afraid, why don't you go down and sneak into the enemy's camp? It's pretty bold as this, and take someone with you up here, and I want you to see what happens. And so, here's what happens, Judges chapter 7, verse 13, it says this. Gideon arrived, just as a man was telling a friend his dream. So, he's in the enemy's camp, and his friend's going, hey, I had this crazy dream. I had a dream, he was saying, a round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, This can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. Oh no, the God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hand. Now you've got to see the humor in this. You know, if I'm imagining that God wants to show me as some mighty warrior, like I'm pulling in and like a, like a, I don't know, a Hummer. Or something like, you know, swords blazing. Like, the descriptor of me is like a cannon or this mighty drone. Never in the world would I want to be like this loaf of bread rolling into camp. You see this? Like, it's a loaf of bread that God uses to describe Gideon. A loaf of bread rolls in and somehow messes up the whole thing. So it's like this big, giant loaf of bread. This is worse than the marshmallow man, right? <laughs> so this big loaf of bread, and they believe wholeheartedly, uh oh. God has given us this dream to tell us that he's going to destroy our camp. See this? God has given the Midianites 
and the whole camp into his hands. God has. So these Midianites are starting to understand what's going on. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, see what he does here? He bowed down and worshiped. Again, God, I got to remember this because I will forget it. I got to remember that you are sovereign. I got to remember that you saved. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. So he goes, and then what happens? He takes all 300, he gives them some trumpets. Really interesting for, you know, like a battle, some fire and some, um, and kind of some lanterns. And he tells them some weird things to stand around the camp at night. And there's some things I could say about that is typically at that kind of entrance, all 300 of those would have represented 300 different battalions. It says that it happens like during the second or third watch. So this would be the middle of the night when one of the watchmen groups is coming down another one was waking up. So one's really tired, the other's groggy, waking up, the other's completely asleep. And so in this moment, you see them make this loud noise and then they say, for God, really important, and for Gideon, a little suspicious of that. You'll hear why in just a second. And all of a sudden, it creates complete pandemonium. So the ones who just woke up, they're crazy and groggy. And the ones who are about to go to sleep, they're so tired and, you know, loopy. And then this one set is in complete sleep. So they wake up and they feel the chaos and they actually just think that they've been, you know, um, ambushed, blitzed. And all of a sudden, they just start swinging their swords and they destroy each other, their entire army. And this is so profound. Because if God takes the 10,000 and God takes the 32,000, he probably could win. He would win, right? But there would have been casualties. This is beautiful. God takes Gideon and he protects the entire nation. Not a single mama loses her boy. See that? Not a single spouse loses her husband. None. And so they, are, they literally take over and they are freed from this oppressor. Right? And, right? So you see this story and you would think that's a really good way to end. They celebrate Gideon for God and for Gideon. And you go, see, now they're back in the land of possibility. Isn't that beautiful? They can't, but God can. So we can just stay there in a place of just this tension of going, I can't do it, but I'm going to continue to put myself in a spot that God can. Really, really beautiful. But that's not how the story ends. In fact, uh, Gideon starts, you know, he, that he's 1-0 now. And he starts taking on some other enemies and he keeps destroying them. And he's got a pretty good record here. He's undefeated. And all of a sudden, like, they're throwing parades for this guy. Like, Gideon's the mighty warrior. And he's like, yeah, God told me I was. I'm a mighty warrior. What's up? You know, signing autographs, kissing babies, whatever that is. I want you to see this. So in Judges chapter 8, he's now had 70 kids. He's wrecking them. And you're going to see that. And you won't see it. If, but if you read Judges chapter 9, you'll see it. Um, so he's, he's just believing his own press. And watch what happens in Judges chapter 8. The Israelites, this is verse 22, said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson. Create a monarchy, right? Because you have saved us in the hand of Midian. Other nations have kings. We need a king, Gideon. Be our king. And then your son can be the next king, and then your grandson can be the next king. We have it established. We can trust you. Gideon can. Gideon can. Gideon can. No, Gideon's godly. Watch what he says. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Oh, that's a godly answer, right? That's so good. He's so nice. Yeah, I won't do that. This is like pastors. I don't know. God does all the work. God does all the work, right? You hear that and suspicious of it. Now watch. But then he says this, verse 24. And then he said, oh, I do have one request. That each of you would give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was a custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. So Ishmaelites, uh, very wealthy. And so they took the plunder. And he's like, I just want you to give me some of your gold. All of you. A little bit of gold. Just pay me a little. They answered, we will be glad to, to give them. So they spread out a garment. And each of them threw a, a ring of his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold he asked uh, for came to 1,700 shekels. That's heavy. That's a lot of gold. That is a lot of wealth right there on the blanket, right? Not counting the ornaments. The pendants. And the purple garments worn by the king of Midian, or the chairs that were on their camel's necks. So he, all of a sudden Gideon goes from nothing to the most wealthy, most praised person in the land. Now watch what happens, verse 27. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. So he makes this big, beautiful gold, you know, suit. Watch what it says here. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. See what happens is he goes from I can't, but God can. I can, but God can to Oh, I got this. Oh, I can. You see the pattern of possibility is going 
I don't really need God anymore. You see, for a lot of us, we respond to God really well in the pain. God, would you please save us? And then God saves us, and we come into this land of prosperity, which is, by the way, the land that we live in. Right? And we go, this land's filled with possibility, but I don't need God. Right? I got it myself. I got coffers of food. I have clothes in the pantry. I have everything I need. And let's just be honest here. If God doesn't come through for most of us today, we're okay. Right? We are really good at passing the test of pain. God, would you please save us? We are all pretty poor and terrible at passing the uh, test of prosperity. Right? We have this belief that somehow, oh no, I did that. I did that. So Gideon believes his own press and he moves to this place. You see even the story of Peter walking on water, right? He's like, God, if that's you, I don't think that's possible. But call me out there. And he starts stepping. I can't, but God can. I don't know how many strides he gets, but like 8, 10, 12. He starts probably doing one of his struts, right? Doing the Michael Jackson moonwalk. And all of a sudden he looks around and he gets fearful. He goes, oh no, I can't do this. And he says he starts to sink. And God reaches out. Go, go, Jesus. Arms, right? Gets him and brings him back. And he literally says, Peter... Why'd you lose your faith? In other words, why did you take your trust out of me? Right? There's this passage in Proverbs. Guys, it haunts me. Because I don't want to pray it. But here's what it says. It says this. Proverbs 30, verse 7 through 9. Two things I ask of the Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies from me. God, please just allow me to live in the truth. And then give me neither poverty nor riches. But give me only my daily bread, otherwise I may have too much and disown you. And say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and still, and so dishonor the name of God. How many of you want to pray that prayer? God, give me neither poverty or riches. Just enough that I can trust you every day so I can continue to remember I can't. But God can, not I can I can. This I can is what starts this cycle over and over and over again. And there's a reason for this, guys. And this is what I think is dangerous in the church, particularly for Gideon. Now, the whole picture of Jesus, he comes and saves his people. And the way he describes himself throughout the, the scriptures of the New Testament, even the Revelation, there's going to be this big party at the end that's called a wedding. So the pictures of the gospel is that Jesus is the groom. Right? And he's coming to save his bride. The bride is all in the lost people in the world. That he's coming to save. Forget your people. Forget your daughter's house. For the king is enthralled by your beauty. Honor him. For he's your Lord. That's what it says in Psalm 45. Right? And so God is coming to have one day this big massive wedding. And then he's given people who are supposed to point to that God. Like Gideon. In fact, there's another one in the New Testament. His name is John. John the Baptist. And John actually refers to himself as the best man. Right? Now what does the best man do? The best man's whole job is to make sure the wedding happens. And the rings are safe so that they can make it all happen there. Right? And you've been to the weddings and you know how it works. Like I'm usually up here as a pastor and you all do it. The, you know, the canon and D or whatever it is. You stand up and you can't wait for the moment. The bride's about to walk in and everybody's going, ah, princess. Right? But you do something there. You can't wait to see her. But you can't just look at her. Right? Your head's on a swivel. Three and nine. Three and nine. Right? Your head is there. And what you're doing is you're looking at the groom, looking at the bride, looking at the groom, looking at the bride. It's like Groundhog's Day. You know when a gra groundhog sees it shadow? You're like, oh, more winter, right? You're watching the groom because if that tear comes down, you're like, this is a good marriage, right? If he cries in that moment, this is going to be a good marriage, right? At least six weeks of it, whatever it is, right? And so, so you're watching it. Now imagine this, this beautiful moment is about to happen. What if the, what if the best man kind of steps in front of the groom and be like, I see you there, lady. Oh, yeah. Right? What do you do if you're the groom? You hit that man in the face. <laughs> you do, right? You see the brokenness of this. And yet what happens for Gideon in this moment is he goes, he goes, no, no, it's not about your groom anymore. For Gideon and God. Not for God and Gideon. For Gideon and I guess God. Right? You see the story for us as we take the story of what God does for us and we tell a new narrative that we should be the hero of that story. And then you end up in the cycle over and over and over again. And so the reality is, for those of us who are Christians, we're going, I need you to stay in that tension where every day you're wondering if God's going to come through. Right? By the way, that's why I think you should keep coming to this church. Because I'm going to keep drawing us to that place. We're going to keep calling you to this land of the unknown where God exists and God gets all the credit. Right? Because we're going to create this tension. And there's a reason we're going to create it. Because we will have victory. Because God's already guaranteed that. And the victory actually belongs to Him. Not to us. So you go, and the band's going to come up, and you said something about the fleece test. Why can't I go, God, if that's true, would you show me? You can, but the reality is, 2,000 years ago, you go, God, do you really love me? He's like, I stepped on this planet to love you. I stepped on this planet. God, how much did you love me? 
I actually decided that I would die so you didn't have to. But how do we not know it's really you? Well, I actually went up on a cross and was murdered for that. And then three days later, I came back to life. And then, so I, you can read throughout human history. You can open up the scriptures. God, what do you want us to do? You can read throughout human history. You can open up the scriptures. And God will guide us in his plan for us. So the reality is you don't need a fleece test. You have God's heart and God's plan and God's truth right in front of you. And greater than that, you have God's spirit that's available to you. So the same God who conquered the, gave, gave, uh, the grave wants to come, lead you, guide you, and welcome you into this victory. But it's his victory. It's not yours, which is really good news. You don't got to fight the battle. You just get to enjoy the, the spoils with the God of the universe. So if you're in a spot where you're in deep pain, you go, God, will you save me? What are your circumstances? The reality is God wants to step in and save you. No, if you're on the other side, if you're in prosperity, that's your circumstance. What does God want you to do with that? What do you think God would have wanted to get him to do? He would have wanted Gideon and those people to leverage those riches and those spoils for the good of those around them. Bless you so you can be a blessing. All that extra you have, there's a reason for it. And it's not for you to get fat and happy. It's so that you can share the goodness of what God has done for you with those around you so one day they go, maybe he is good. So would you stand with me as we sing about this song, who, uh, this God who will be victorious.
probably in uh, one or two tests right now. Maybe uh, dealing with both of them. A test of pain. What do you do with it? Maybe it's possible God can deliver you from that. Right? Maybe that's possible. Maybe you just reach out to him and go, God, would you deliver me from this pain, this sorrow? Double dog dare to ask him. He will. He does every time. Or some of you are in the test of prosperity, which is going, this question. God, why have you given me what you've given me? Good health, extra resources, whatever it is. And I promise you, those things that he's given you, that prosperous life you live are for two reasons. So that you can declare his goodness to all people and that you can participate in his restoration of this earth to bring the kingdom of heaven to it. Right? Those are the two reasons. So you're going, I'm not sure exactly how to do that. That's great. We understand that. I'm not sure exactly how to talk to God about this pain. That's great. We understand that. And I just say, let us help you with that. So if you're heading that way. No pressure on you here. But if you want to actually talk to someone, pray with someone about those things as people are heading that way. Right here to my right, there'd be people who'd be happy, happy happy, happy to pray with you. Go to God on your behalf and go, God, would you just give some clarity around this pain, around this prosperity? Other than that, we'd love, love, love for you to come back and hang out with us on Wednesday for Cal Connect on Wednesday. Dinner's at 530. The menu's posted out next to the women's bathroom. And then at 615, all the Bible classes, which are also posted out there. So you guys have a great rest of your day. Drive safe, and we'll see you on Wednesday night.